Please do keep your Bibles open at this passage we've just read together. There's something moving as you read the account of a man who's about to take leave of people that he knows he will not see again on this side of glory. And you can see the emotion laden language that he uses himself and the emotion that's described by Luke who is with Paul as he says farewell to the church at Ephesus. This is one of a series of such farewells that we find in the Bible. They come at key points in the history of redemption, transitional points where leadership passes from one form of leader to another. For example, when Jacob, the last of the patriarchs, is dying. He gives a protracted uh, farewell address to his sons in which he summarizes the past and looks to the future and uh, indicates what the future is going to hold. When Moses, the great deliverer of Israel, is about to leave this world, he says his farewells. They're recorded in the book of Deuteronomy as he, as he leaves and as the responsibility for Israel passes into the hands of Joshua. Uh, there's Joshua's farewell as uh, he says goodbye to Israel and leaves it in the hands of judges. Then Samuel, the last of the judges, has a, a lengthy farewell speech before appointing Saul as the first king of Israel. None of these farewell addresses comes near, of course, to the farewell address of the Lord Jesus. It's recorded in John's Gospel, as Jesus in the upper room prepares his followers for his departure, tells them that he will not leave them as orphans, that he will come to them in the person of the Holy Spirit to be with them at all times, in all places, something that he could not do because he was bodily going to be in glory with the Father. Now we come to the last of these series of farewells. This is the last one that you find in Scripture. This is the final transition. What is going to happen from this time forward is that the people of God will be governed in a different way. Uh, not by Christ and His personal physical presence with them. Not by Christ in His personal physical presence through the apostles with the church. Now the apostolic age is coming to an end and a new kind of leadership is required to take the church forward. A covenantal leadership appointed by God to serve the covenant people of God. And who these leaders are, are described in three Greek words that I want you to notice. In verse 17, they're called presbyteros or presbyteroi, elders. In verse 28a, they're called poimen or pastors or shepherds. And in verse 28b, they're called episcopoi, or overseers, or bishops. Those three words are used. Now, I want you to notice what the apostle does. This is more of a Bible study tonight than a sermon. It's very hard to make anything really pointed and direct and sermonic about talking about some of the themes that are here. But they're all stuff we need to know. We need to put it in a framework. So he begins by using an Old Testament title for this New Testament leadership to describe the officers of the church going forward into the future. In verse 17, he calls for the elders, the presbyteros, to come and meet with him. 
And the first lesson this teaches us is that the Apostle Paul and the early church recognized that the leadership of the new Israel is a continuation of the leadership of old Israel, that is the eldership of Israel. That whereas under old Israel, which is a theocracy and a nation-state, the elders had civil and ecclesiastical authority in Israel, so in the new Israel, which is a church and not a nation-state, the elders have full ecclesiastical and religious authority in the church, which is the new Israel. In fact, what we discover through the language that Paul uses here is that when Jesus said that he was handing the church the keys of the kingdom of God, he was actually handing them to the church into the hands of the leadership of the church, the elders of the church, the keys being the power to affirm or deny that someone is a true Christian, the power to affirm or deny that a given statement or a given doctrine is consistent with the revelation that's found of the Christian faith in Scripture. Paul is handing this authority over to the elders of the church. Greg Beale, who teaches at Westminster Seminary, has written this. Besides the use of the same word, elders, in the book of Acts, repeatedly juxtaposes, the book of Acts repeatedly juxtaposes the phrase, the rulers and elders, chapter 4 of Israel, or the chief priests and elders, in chapters 4, 23, 25, or the elders and the scribes of Israel, chapter 6, verse 12, it juxtaposes that description of old Israel with a description, the apostles and elders of the church, mostly in chapter 15 and 16. What we learn just from reading the book of Acts is that what the rulers and elders of the Jew Jewish nation did when they were gathered together in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders of the church did when they were gathered together in Jerusalem. The elders of the Jews, they gathered together to discuss the matter of Christian teaching. Was it biblical or not? Was it of God or not? And in Acts 15, the apostles and the elders of the church, they gathered together to do the very same thing. They gathered together to discuss whether or not the Jewish Christian teaching that new Gentile converts had to keep the law of Moses in order to be Christians, they were analyzing whether that was biblical or not. In other words, when you read the book of Acts, you discover that the Jewish elders and the Christian elders do the same job. They do the same job in their respective covenant communities. Their job is to adjudicate whether a new theological teaching is biblical and valid or not. That's a vital lesson for us to remember. So in the New Testament, this word for elder is used. It's used of people who rule the church. It's used of people who labor in the word and doctrine. And later on in the New Testament, we find that within the eldership, there is a general rule, and there are those whose specific task is to teach, and we call these teaching elders. So he uses this Old Testament title. Secondly, he uses an Old Testament metaphor. 
He uses the metaphor of a shepherd. When he says, for example, care for the church of God, he uses the word to shepherd from the word poimen. Shepherd the church of God. This idea of shepherding the flock of God is a familiar Old Testament metaphor. It's a picture of God's people as sheep. You're looking rather sheepish this evening. Uh, they're, they're sheep and they're under the oversight of shepherds. And as you read the, the Older Testament, what you discover is that major prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel have to rebuke Israel's elders for not doing the ship shepherding job. He has to rebuke them because they were exploiting the sheep rather than feeding them. They weren't protecting the sheep. They were looking out for number one. They were indifferent to the needs of the sheep. And they were doing their own thing. They weren't looking after the stray or bandaging the wounded or disciplining the bullies. And so these prophets say that the Lord himself would have to come into the situation. The Lord himself would come. He would do the business of the shepherd. He would be the righteous branch descended from David. Jesus, the good shepherd, fulfills the promises of the shepherding process. In Jeremiah 23 verse 4, we also find that this shepherding will be shared with others. There will be a plurality of faithful shepherds working under the one shepherd who is to be the Messiah himself. Then the third image that he uses is a familiar description that is familiar in the ancient world of the overseer who manages and leads the people. And that word, episkopoi, is sometimes translated bishop or overseer. Now you have to bring all of those descriptions together to describe what the officers of the church are. They are elders who shepherd the flock and oversee the work. One office, not multiple offices, not elders and then bishops over them. The bishops are elders. The elders are bishops. The elders and bishops are shepherds, pastors of the flock. Now you would expect that if that's what the Bible teaches, that that's what the early Christians would recognize. So when you come out of the Bible times and you look at Clement of Rome, for example, who's writing round about the year 95 AD, he uses the word bishop and elder interchangeably in his writings. In the Didache, written about 98 AD, we read about two offices in the church, the bishops and the deacons. In the fourth century, Jerome admits that it's in the apostles, they teach, that presbyters, elders, are the same as bishops, episcopoi, and that they are, quote, all alike of equal rank, and that they chose one of their number to moderate their meetings. He goes on to say, quote, before attachment to persons in religion was begun at the inst instigation of the devil, the churches were governed by the common consultation of elders. What's he referring to there? He's referring to the emergence of a monarchical bishop. That is of one of the elders who has more power than the rest and has a kind of authoritative role. In AD 3, 376, Ambrose 
contrasts the arrangements at his time with those of the early church where Timothy was created a presbyter, a bishop, uh, sorry, an elder by Paul, and a bishop. Quote, Ambrose says, For so at first the presbyters were called. In other words, the presbyter and the episcopos, the elder and the bishop were one and the same thing. The famous Anglican scholar J.B. Lightfoot notes <clears throat> that the agreement of <clears throat> Chrysostom and Theodore and Theodoret and others whose commentaries were written before the 5th century all affirm that the bishops and elders were one office in the church. <clears throat> now why do I say all of that? You're wondering. I should tell you that we Presbyterians have got it right. Uh, after all, we're just copying the early church and we're copying the Apostle Paul. One of the, one of the things we, we want to say in, as, we, as we move on in this passage is as Paul identifies who the leaders are in the church, he then goes on to underline the value of the church. Look at verse 28. Pay careful attention. He addresses these people. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. Now, there are three things, I think, there that underline the value of the church. <clears throat> First of all, the church is God's flock. You notice the emphasis there that they're to pay attention to all the flock of God. Jesus had talked about the flock of God, the people of God. Uh, and he described the fact that he had come to believing Jews. He'd come to believing Israel, to reveal himself to believing Israel. But he said, these aren't the only believers they are going to be. There are other sheep that I have that are not of this fold. And I've come to get them and bring them so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. Echoing the language of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. One flock and one shepherd. And Jesus says his great task and the task of the shepherds of the people of God is to bring them in, bring them in so that there would be one flock and one shepherd. Jews and Gentiles alike together in one flock, God's flock, because they're God's folk, God's folk in God's flock, one church that belongs to God. It's God's church. That's the second point. The church is God's flock. And the church is God's ecclesia, God's assembly. The word is translated church here. This word is a great Old Testament word. Whenever Israel would come together, perhaps out in the desert there at Mount Sinai, for example, or at Mount Horeb, whenever Israel gathered together, they assembled together, this is the word that was used. We find uh, Stephen referring back in chapter 7 of Acts, uh, referring back to the great church in the wilderness, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness. And that's why we, we celebrate, on Sundays we celebrate Christian worship. I know that there are some people who don't believe in Christian worship. There's, there's, a group of, there's a teaching that started in Australia and has come via London in England, and it's still it's disseminating its way through different quarters that says, you know, all of life is worship. Nothing special happens on the Lord's Day. In fact, we don't really recognize Sunday as being a, the Sabbath day at, at all because that commandment's been dropped out of the picture. And, 
And uh, when we're gathered together for those two hours on Sunday or whatever, we're no more worshiping God then than we are on Monday morning when we're driving to work or we're sitting at our desk in the office and so on. All of life is worship. There's no special thing when God's people are gathered. Yeah, the whole language of the New Testament. These people don't see that the New Testament is connected to the Old Testament, that there's a continuity. The continuity is that the church gathered is the church. The gathering is important. The assembling is important. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's how we come together to God. The rest of the week we're scattered. But here we're gathered as God's people. As an assembly, we gather to God. And then the third thing that it says there is that the church is God's possession. He obtained it with his own blood. And many of the translations find the shocking nature of that statement difficult. I mean, how can God have blood? And so there's another translation possible. It is possible. And that is that it was the blood of his own. In other words, if I can read it again, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own. Kind of a strange way of putting it. And it's a way to avoid the shocking nature of the way, I think, that Paul puts it. He wants to shake us up. It was the blood of God. Well, you say, isn't that theological, theologically wrong to say that? And strictly, strictly it, it, it is. But I, I want you to notice one of, the, one of the things that we learn in theology is that the two natures of Christ, the two natures of Christ have properties which they don't share with each other. So, for example, you cannot attribute to Jesus' human nature characteristics that are only true of his divine nature. And you cannot attribute to his divine nature characteristics that are only true of his human nature. In other words, when Jesus died upon the cross, you have to understand it was Jesus in his human nature that died. You cannot, strictly speaking, say that God died. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Even when he's confined as a human in his mother's uterus, when he's growing up in Nazareth, when he is hanging, pierced on the cross in his human nature, as the second person of the Holy Trinity, he is upholding the universe by the power of his word. As the second person of the Trinity, he is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his divine nature. While all the time in his human nature, he is frail, feeble, hungry, sorrowing, crying, agonizing, and dying. Those two things we have to keep distinct. The two natures of Christ are without confusion, without admixture. We have to say that. Two natures, one person. But because he is two natures in one person, we can refer to him as the man Christ Jesus, and we can refer to him as the Son of God, or God the Son. And what Paul is doing here is he's bringing together these two aspects of Jesus, both his human and divine nature, and he is saying that when Jesus died because of the union of these two natures 
in one person, you can say shockingly that on the cross it was the blood of God, God the Son, in human nature. It was the blood of God the Son that was shed to bring us to God and to purchase the church of God. In other words, what he's underlining is the huge investment God has made in the church. He has purchased it. It is his treasure. His people are the apple of his eye. God is at work in the world. Through the church of God, he places enormous value on the church of God. But not only the value of the church, the vulnerability of the church. In uh, Daniel chapter 12, Daniel's talking about the last days, our days. And this is what Daniel says there. He says, there will be in the last days a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And as you go on to read in Daniel, you discover that as he looks forward into the future, he sees two things taking place. On the one hand, he sees a coming trial in which the main feature is going to be one of deception. Deception within the covenant community of God's people. And there will be persecution for those who resist compromise. That's one thing he sees. The other thing he sees is that there will be in the last days disruptions in the natural order. Now Daniel and the other Old Testament prophets thought these things would all happen at the same time. Jesus, in his teaching, takes these things, says they're absolutely right, but he distinguishes, he distinguishes between what's going to happen in the beginning of that period and what's going to happen at the very end of that period of the last days. He says there will be, there will be a breakdown of the cosmic order in the last days. And that was heralded, by the way, when Jesus was on the cross. You remember, there was a, a sign of that when as Jesus died, there was darkness throughout the land, and then the earth shook, and the rocks were split apart, and the tombs were open. And there was a kind of foretaste of what it's going to be like at the end. So at the beginning and at the end of this age, there are these disruptions. Meanwhile, between there and there, between the beginning and the end, Jesus said, there would be earthquakes and famines and all kinds of things throughout this age, but those things aren't the signs of the end. They're just the beginnings. They're the beginnings of the birth pangs of a new creation. A new creation that's coming. In other words, this new creation has begun, but it's not being completed. But the other element that, uh, that Daniel talks about is this element of deception. He talks about a figure who's going to emerge. And she'll take, this figure will be enraged and will take action. This is chapter 11. Against the holy covenant, that is the relationship between God and his people. He will turn back and pay attention, focus his attention on those who forsake the holy covenant. They will appear and profane the temple. Now the temple, the temple is the church. The temple is the final temple of which Jesus is the cornerstone. And Jesus' people are the living stones that build it up. So when he talks about in the last days that the temple will be profaned and the abomination that makes desolate will be set up 
within the temple. He's talking about false teaching in the church. When he says that this person will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Will encourage people to break covenant with God. He's talking about false teaching, false prophets, bad leadership within the church of God, the visible church of God. And he challenges those who have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the hearts to respond. People who know their God will stand firm and take action. In the church, that is always a challenge to us as God's people. To stand firm in the midst of the whole welter of false teaching that is hurled at the church. Paul picks this very language up. 1 Timothy 4, before he dies, writing one of his last letters, Paul puts it like this, In the later times, some shall depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, the last days, our days, are going to be characterized throughout by errors and heresies and false teachers and false prophets and bad leadership and deception and lies from hell and doctrines of demons inside the church of Jesus Christ. You read Jesus' seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation and you'll notice that in every one of them there is the danger of false teaching. You look at the history of Christianity it is the danger of false teaching. That's why Christianity has spouted forth so many different kinds of denominations, so many sects. Islam is a Christian heresy, for example. It's arguable that socialism is a Christian heresy. All kinds of false teaching that have some connection to the temple, to the church of God in this age in which we live. And what does Paul say to these elders? You notice that he underlines this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, the elders, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them, not to Jesus. We saw earlier on in our studies in Acts, that in Acts 15, in fact, just before the council of Acts 15, that the, exhort, the disciples, the apostles, Paul among them, were, were exhorting believers to continue in the faith. That is not their own personal faith, but the teaching, the faith, the thing we believe. Continue in the faith. Why? Because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then it goes on to say, they appointed elders for them in every church. There in chapter 14, we find the same as we find here in chapter 20, that the appointment of elders in the church is primarily, primarily to do with Jesus' provision for the church as a firewall against error and against deception and against doctrinal illusion and delusion. That the whole purpose of the role of elder, we, we, we were studying elder uh, uh, earlier about the role of deacon in the church, the, the servant and 
charitable ministry of the diaconate. This other role, the role of elder, is primarily to do with the faith, with the truth, with the teaching that has been handed down to the church. So as Paul talks to these people, he reminds them of what is the instrument that will guard the church of God. What is the instrument? What is the instrument is the teaching that we have received from the apostle, as these elders here received it from Paul. He said, I remind you of what I shared with you. I taught to you the whole counsel of God. That's your weapon. That's the instrument that I put in your hand with which you may wield it in order to defend the church. That is the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God. Wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you will fight against errors, and you will fight against the evils of the evil one, and you will guard and protect the body of Christ, the church of God, from these illusions, and these delusions, from these anti-Christian ideas that are swirling all around. That's why Paul says that he doesn't consider his life worth living, because he wants to finish the race and get on with the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. The church is represented by her officers, and her officers' task is to preserve the church doctrinally intact from one generation to the next. That's the great charge that Paul gives to Timothy. It's the charge that's been handed to us as leaders in this church here. It's the, it's the task that you should keep us to. You should keep us to this charge. You should insist that we do our business, which is to guard the church from error, to preserve the church for the next generation. You see, I keep telling young, our interns this, the young guys this, we're only ever one generation away from losing the gospel. I'll tell you how we lose the gospel. We lose the gospel not only by what people say, but by what people don't say. I've illustrated this before. Somebody wrote a paper about the historical Adam recently, and I read it, and this is a very impressive person that I know well, and he's written a very great defense of the historical Adam, but he does not say that Adam is the first man. And one of these days I'm going to tease out the implications of that. If Adam is not the first man... And if there was sin before Adam, let me just, this one illustration, I'm just going to teach you this one little thing to illustrate this. If there was sin before Adam, that means there wasn't a fall into sin. It means that sin is not an alien invader. It means that sin is inherent in human nature. It has terrible implications for our whole understanding of salvation and the work of Christ. It's a very serious thing. And I just use that to illustrate. It's not just what people say that's wrong. It's what people don't say. I remember somebody come to, came to work with me on one occasion. He'd been brought in by the, the leaders. Uh, the, the reason they brought him in was, as they put it, to balance Liam. <laughs> the suggestion that Liam was imbalanced is it, always a bit concerning to me, but th there you go. It was because they thought I was really hardline, and I'm not hardline. But um, I, don't think, I don't think so. I'm just somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan or something. Um, 
but, but they brought this guy in, and, and he was a very fine fellow. I, I, I really loved this guy. He, he was a good friend and a loyal colleague and uh, a very charming fellow. But as I listened to him speaking, whenever he was preaching, the stuff he left out of his talks, I never heard him talk about sin. I never heard him talk about the cross. I never heard him talk about repentance. I never heard him talk about the hard stuff you find in the gospel. Everything he said, technically, was okay. What he didn't say cried out about his own theological position, and he was all over the place theologically. That's why they brought him in to balance me. They brought somebody who was all over the place who would be a good balance. A terrible situation, really, both for him and for me. That's bad leadership. The elders of that church, I'm afraid, made a major mistake there. They weren't taking seriously their task. Their task is not to expose the people to a range of views. That was their view some of which are orthodox and some aren't. The job of the elders to pass on, to use the language the Apostle Paul uses, the deposit of truth. We've been given this deposit of truth. You, can't, you don't change the deposit. You've, you've been handed it. It's summarized in our confessions and catechism. And my job is, before I die, to make sure that that truth has been passed on intact to the next generation. That's what you should be praying for us as elders here and for the elders of the churches of our denomination and for evangelical leaders throughout America, that they would take seriously this great task. How does Jesus provide for the care of his people? He appoints elders in all the churches to ensure that the truth is protected for their soul's sake. For their soul's sake. For your soul's sake. And I think one other implication of that is, to use the language that Paul teaches, I don't have, I don't have the privilege of deciding how much of the truth of God's word you can take or not. I know people who do this. They kind of measure it out. Well, my people can take this, but they can't take that. That's too, that's too much for them. That, that would give them indigestion. We shouldn't teach them that because really they wouldn't get their heads around that. There are churches where the, the message is so dumbed down, never stretches anyone's thinking or challenges their thinking. It's really up to the Holy Spirit to decide what you can take and what you can't take. And my view is you take out of a sermon or you take out of a study what you can, and you leave what you can't take. You, you know, you, you, you kind of self-digest kind of thing. Probably the wrong expression. That just came to my mind. You kind of, but you can only eat what you can eat. And what you can't eat, well, you can pick it up later on as we go. The great challenge then of the passage is the reminder, God's truth is what feeds and cares for and protects the church of God. Well, let's pray together before we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the provision of your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit to guard the gospel, to get the gospel out, to get the gospel into our hearts, 
And we pray that for the good of your church here and around the world. We pray that you would raise up godly men who would take this word seriously and would give themselves to getting their minds around its truth, getting it into their hearts, and getting it out to the people of God, the flock of God, which you purchase with the blood of your Son. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.